Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as He makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Again, thank you for being here. Really excited that you're here. I want, to, I want you guys to finish this phrase for me. I know we all know it. Let me start it, though. It is better to have loved and lost than to... Right, than to have never loved at all. In other words, the positives of finding love far outweigh the negatives of potentially losing a relationship, right? Yet... Some of you are already shaking your head no, because research conclusively shows that in general, humans hold on to negative emotions far more strongly than positive memories. Studies show that even people who report their childhoods as peaceful, happy, or positive will, at, will when asked to recite a memory from their childhood, start with a memory that is negative first, like almost always. It was like 80, 90%. Research also shows that when providing feedback to someone, you probably have heard this one before, you need a ratio of seven compliments to one critique in order for the person to not walk away feeling absolutely crushed, right? If you say four good things about someone and one negative thing, they're still probably going to walk away feeling absolutely destroyed. It's such a weird, weird thing. Roy F., Baumeister, I think is his name. Um, he's a fellow at the Association for Psychologi- Psychological Sciences. He says, it is human nature. Bad emotions, bad parents, bad feedback have more impact than good ones. Bad impressions and bad stereotypes are quicker to form and more resistant to disconfirmation than good ones. So is it true that it is better to have loved and lost than have never loved at all. Maybe some of you who met your uh, sweetheart in high school would say yes. <laughs> Maybe others of you who have experienced that loss would say no. Is the pain of losing love worth it? One movie that explores this is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I don't know if anyone's watched this movie, but it is a great, great movie. Uh, and in this movie, Jim Carrey's character Joel discovers that his ex-girlfriend... Kate Winslet's character, Clementine, has used a new medical procedure to erase the memories of her relationship with him. So they had a real, I know it's crushing. They had a really, really bad breakup, and so she erased any memory that she had of him. Heartbroken, Joel decides to go through the same procedure. Now, I'm not going to spoil everything for you in this 20-year-old movie, uh, but you're welcome. But the rest of the movie explores whether or not they should have erased the memories of one another. They ask the question, is it better to love and to lose or to forget it altogether? Regardless of the movie the conclusion comes to, or the conclusion the movie comes to, I believe this reality of experiencing negative emotions stronger than positive ones causes people to move a little bit differently in the world. And I believe this idea obviously applies to romantic relationships, but I think it applies to more than just that. I think it applies to how we get to close, how close we get to friends, our children even, maybe God. Do we risk being emotionally in tune with our experiences 
and with other people in a broken world? Or do we recognize that brokenness often begets brokenness? So we build up these massive walls of pillows to make sure every experience is comfortable, not opening us up to the pain of missed expectations. Take a second, just think, like, which one am I a little bit more, uh, uh, which one do I more often do? See, I think people may be able to recite the old saying, but they behave in self-protective and comfort-seeking ways. You see, and I want to explore a little bit why this morning. I think that love often creates in us this deep sense of yearning, of longing for something to be captured, right? You know what I'm talking about. It's a little bit of like a dissatisfaction mixed with hope. It puts us in this vulnerable position where we are easily crushed by a two-letter word, no. Longing and pain, I think, are two sides of the same coin. Both tell us that things aren't the way we want them to be. Right? Longing and pain, they tell us things aren't the way we want them to be. And so, often, that longing is just avoided because it creates in us discomfort. So often, we would rather be numb than hurt. Now, this isn't new to our generation, right? Every generation has been tempted with the idol of comfort and with prioritizing our emotional steadiness over opening ourselves up to love and relationship. And so as a result, this is translated really, really easily to our relationships with God. Even as Christians, we believe it is better to just know things about God, to be able to recite facts about who he might be, rather than actually pursuing a deep relationship with God. We, we mix up intellect with relationship, right? Because it's safer. What if God rejects me? What if I find out I'm not good enough? C.S. Lewis put this idea incredibly succinctly, I think. He said, and I've used this quote before. I'm just going to warn you, I'll probably use it again. I love it. It says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling along with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In other words, instead of seeking God in our desires for love, significance, and joy, we seek the comforts of drink and sex and ambition because we don't know the absolute depth of joy offered to us in a relationship with God. So we play it safe. A couple of men recognized this reality for themselves, uh, that they had let themselves fall into the comforts of the world instead of embracing the comfort of Christ. So I want to share a couple more quotes for you. Augustine of Hippo, Hippo was in, I think it was Egypt, but North Africa. Uh, He said this, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Do you see what Augustine's saying? 
He had these fruitless joys, and God drove them from him and took their place. Another man, John Owen. This one is a little bit uh, a wordier, so if it doesn't land for you, just act like I didn't say it. Oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live, herein would I die, hereon would I dwell in my thoughts and my affections, until all things here below become as dead and deformed things, and in no longer any way calling out for my affections. You see, both Augustine and Owen are saying that there were things, fruitless joys for Augustine, or dead and deformed things for Owen. There were these things that provided temporary comfort and what they thought was joy for them, and yet when they found Christ and allowed him in, the joy he brought was so much deeper. They cultivated a deep yearning, a deep desire, a deep longing for Christ that although uncomfortable at times, provided them opportunities to see more and more of who Jesus is. Now, I I know most of you are probably sitting and thinking, that's great, Jimmy, but I'm not a church father, right? I'm not Augustine. I am not where these guys are. And now all all I feel is guilty, right? And I'm here to tell you good. No, I'm just kidding. I'm here to tell you that that's okay. It's okay to not be at this spot. We have to be honest with where we're at. In our, in our current cultural context, it's pretty easy to scroll or listen or watch instead of cultivating a life of longing, right? Maybe you're not, uh, I'm skipping ahead. So this morning, I am invite, inviting you into that cultivation. Maybe you are not in a place to want a relationship with God that deep right now, right? And so I'm inviting you to wanting to want God, longing to long for him getting ourselves to a place where we can even pray. Maybe not do, but pray, God rid me of these fruitless joys and take their place. So how do we get there? How do we cultivate lives that want to want? Lives of longing. My answer for this morning, uh, as we continue to explore our series, Journeying to the Cross, what we're doing is we're looking at different spiritual disciplines uh, that in order to really bring us closer and closer to the cross as we approach Easter uh, in this Lent season, my answer is that we cultivate lives of longing through regular rhythms of fasting. We cultivate lives of longing through regular rhythms of fasting. Let me show you why. So we're going to jump back into Matthew 9 to see what I mean. In Matthew 9, Our passage begins with some of the disciples of John the Baptist asking Jesus a question. Why is it that we fast? Why is it that the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And then if you notice, uh, John's disciples did throw in the word often just to show how like holy they were, right? Man, we're just fasting so often and I haven't seen you fast once, right? John's disciples are immediately showing their hands. Because of our awareness of our fallen nature, what are we always trying to do? We are always trying to justify ourselves, right? Aren't I good for what I do? Why don't you do it like I do? And yet, we who live on this side of the cross know that we are not justified by our works, but by him who took our sin on the cross. And I bring this up because as we explore different spiritual disciplines in this Lenten season, We cannot allow ourselves to believe that any of these provide any sort of justification, 
right? Our spiritual disciplines are paving ways for us to understand our relationship with God, not provide the relationship. Okay, so John's disciples ask, and Jesus provides a metaphor. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. So we're going to get a little bit deeper into this wedding imagery, but let's just, lay the, let's just like take a lay of the land. Who is the bridegroom here? Jesus. I think you said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And who are the wedding guests here? His disciples. Yes. I see your hand, Jen. Thank you. Uh, so he's not saying that as, sorry, he's saying that as long as he is with them, that his disciples do not need to fast, but that once he is gone, they will need to fast. Why? We'll get there in a minute. Because I want to look at the two metaphors just to sort of relay the land before we get to this. So he uses these two really interesting metaphors. Uh, he uses the metaphor of an untrunk garment and then uh, a metaphor of wineskins. In order to avoid, avoid um, sort of boring you with the technicalities of the way that clothing was patched or the way that uh, wine was stored in the first century, I just want to jump straight to the meaning here. So it's, I think it's on our next slide here, just to remind you. Jesus is saying that we aren't going to continue to practice religious customs for the same old reasons, right? So they're bringing up a religious custom, fasting, and he's saying we're not going to practice fasting for the same reasons that we've always practiced fasting, right? Let me explain. In the Old Testament, fasting was a common practice that carried over to Jesus' time. In fact, John's disciples and the Pharisees were actually right to say that they fasted often because they were fasting like twice a week. That's, that's a lot of days. Uh, there were a lot of reasons to fast, but we now have the four main reasons uh, for fasting in the Old Testament. It was to consecrate yourself. That's to make yourself holy uh, if you're entering into a temple for sacrifice, things like that. Uh, it was to express grief or sorrow. Fasting was a sign that you were sad. It would often be combined with wearing sackcloth or rubbing ashes on yourself. Fasting in the Old Testament was also for God to intervene in a scenario. And then it was an act of repentance or forgiveness. You see, Jesus was pretty good at knowing the Hebrew Bible. So he knew why, the John, why John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. It would have been maybe a combination of these reasons, right? But Jesus also knew that he, the bridegroom, in having come as a human, was changing the ways in which people were invited to relate to God. No longer would people need to consecrate themselves. They would receive Christ's holiness, right? He was with them at the time, so he was inviting them not to express grief and sorrow then. His being there pointed to God's intervention, and then he would eventually bring forgiveness for all who followed him, right? And so he was inviting a different way of thinking about fasting. And so even though we are invited to continue to fast, we will not do it for the same reasons. We're not pouring new, we're not pouring new wine into old wineskins, right? There are new wineskins that we can use. There are new reasons why we fast. There is a better way. But what is that better way? Let's go back to the wedding metaphor that Jesus provides. So we've already established that Jesus is the bridegroom here, that his disciples are the guests. Why does Jesus call himself the bridegroom? 
You see, Jesus is making an intentional claim about himself here. The Old Testament is littered with wedding language, right? You can look at the whole book of Hosea is essentially talking about a wedding, and then he relates it to God and his people and their wedding together, right? Uh, Often the language used is that of a covenant, but sometimes the references are even more directly to a husband or a bridegroom for Israel. One of the most direct references is Isaiah 54, which I have on the screen. It says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. So who's the husband here? God. So Jesus, in invoking the language of bridegroom, he's making a deific claim, right? He is pointing ever so slightly to the fact that he is God. Okay, so because Jesus, God, is with the people, they will not fast. So your question might be now, are Christians supposed to fast, right? Should we fast? Because, I mean, Jesus isn't with us, but we do have the indwelt Holy Spirit, right? So do we really need to fast? And I don't think we're asking the the right question. I don't think need to questions are very helpful when it comes to understanding the gospel of grace. So a better question to ask is, is fasting helpful? Well, what reason does Jesus provide for why people will eventually fast again? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Jesus, of course, is talking about the time where he will leave his disciples post his death and resurrection when he ascends to heaven, right? He's saying once he, he is taken from them, once he is no longer physically with his disciples, then they will fast. Which means Jesus is saying his lack of presence should lead people to fasting. And this is really where we get to the why. Fasting is a physical expression of the heart hunger we have for full union with Christ. Fasting is a physical expression of the heart hunger we have for full union with Christ. People are called to fast to point them to understanding their current reality more fully. That although we have tasted the kingdom of heaven, we are not yet fully satisfied. And so, fasting becomes a way of disrupting our comfort in order to draw our attention elsewhere. Right? It's, an, it's a way of intentionally setting aside time to remember that things are not as they ought to be, but that a better time is ahead. Fasting is a time to physically yearn, physically hunger, to remind ourselves to cultivate a life that spiritually hungers as well. So is it required? No. But is it helpful? I think so, right? So if it's helpful, how do we fast on this side of the cross? How do we fast with the new wineskins, right? Uh, I I sort of provided uh, sort of three steps that I do in my fasting, and we'll talk about that. The first step is intentionally choosing to abstain from something, right? Fasting is abstinence from something. Now, I know fasting is often seen as not partaking in food, and I think that that's going to most directly point us to this idea of spiritual hunger. So fasting from food is a good thing, but I know that people often have complicated relationships or even painful relationships with food. I know that a variety of health reasons make it impossible to skip out on a meal or two. I also know that there are things like eating disorders that are far more prevalent than we are often aware. 
And so I want to say if either of these realities are part of your story, you are not less than just because you are unable to fast, right? You can fast, but maybe it's from social media or from Netflix. Um, I'm actually currently fasting from Twitter. And let me tell you, I know, I did a really, thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's actually what, I did this whole sermon just so you guys could clap for me. Yeah, I'm just so holy. Um, I, I did a really, really corny pastor thing where, where Twitter was on my phone, I put my Bible app. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't clicked it as often still, but whatever. Um, there, I'm, I'm telling you, there are multiple times a day where I am like seeking to click Twitter because I am like hungry to be on there. So that like, I know it's really dumb, but that is a, re, that is a good way to fast. That is absolutely okay. But in choosing to abstain, be it from food or something else, we are intentionally causing some sort of disruption, right? Some sort of disruption in our rhythms. And in the disruption, we are primed for something new. And so I want to invite you, consider, what could I disrupt that would help me to, be, to create more time or create more space for something new? Because then the next step we do is we acknowledge reality. So intentionally choosing to abstain from something, and then number two, acknowledge reality. Acknowledging reality is really important in our times of fasting because it reminds us that things are not as they ought to be. It helps us to realize that there should be a hunger, a longing for something better. While acknowledging reality can be hard sometimes, hard does not mean bad, right? Uncomfortable is not bad. We're going to go back to the C.S. Lewis well. Uh, he tells us that allowing ourselves to feel desires that are not easily satisfied is actually good for our souls. He says it this way, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical, logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Sometimes we have to allow these desires in. Be it more intentional about, reali about realizing that they exist because we have padded our lives so well with comforts that partially satisfy. So acknowledging reality can look like this. Say it's food I'm fasting from. I skip a meal on Wednesday or whatever day. And so instead of using that hour or so to eat, the first half of my time is just acknowledging reality. Maybe it's world events that are happening that remind us of our broken world. Maybe it's something hard that happened directly to me in my week. Whatever it is, once we acknowledge that reality, it opens us up further for step three which is seek to be filled with Jesus. In the midst of our hunger, we can be met with the satisfaction that comes with a relationship with God. John 6, 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus promises that he is a true satisfaction for which we long, that he is the true bread for which we hunger. He is the one we continuously seek, yet so often we seek who he is in things that will never meet our needs, right? And so fasting is a reminder that we are not filled by things of this earth, but we are only filled and fulfilled by him. We fast because we've tasted the kingdom and nothing else will satisfy us. Now, I do want to warn you, Bread of life is a little different than your typical bread, if this is going to be new for you. 
with your typical bread, you eat and you are full for a while and then you have to eat again, right? But generally speaking, at least once you're grown, you're always eating about the same amount and the satisfaction of a meal often lasts about the same time. It is not so with the bread of life. You see, the more you taste, the more you're going to want and the more you will go after Jesus. And as you taste more and more of the kingdom of God, you'll realize Jesus really is an inexhaustible well of satisfaction and of new life. I want to be honest with you, when I was an early Christian, I understood a bit of the draw of eternity with God. But let's be honest, my real motivation for heaven was an easy, perfect life and that it was not the other side. It was not hell, right? That was like my motivation when I became a Christian at 16. Yet the more I've seen God, the more I'm like, not even eternity is enough for me to see all of you, God. I understand Moses now. And not fully, you know, I'm not saying I'm at the level of Moses, but I understand him a little bit more. When after standing face to face with God as a man does with his friend, Moses said to God, show me your glory. That is a wild thing. Moses is spending time with the God of the universe and he asks for more. He had to hide his face from the Israelites because the glory of God shone too brightly from his face because he was spending too much time with God. And yet, he asked for more. We fast because even though we've experienced God in all his glory, we want more. And God, in all of his grace, freely gives us all that we ask. So this week, I invite you into a time of fasting. Maybe it's a meal or a full day of meals. Maybe if food is impossible for you, it's a week without TV or without social media. But intentionally set aside a time to abstain, acknowledge reality, and seek to be filled with Christ. Maybe not eating a meal frees you also to buy a meal for someone else, right? There are justice aspects to our uh, fasting as well. I want to invite you, if you live in the area uh, and you are free from 12 to 1 on Tuesday, um, I will be in the, this building fasting and praying for a day. Uh, I'll be in the coffee shop around 1145. And then if anyone is here with me, we can, we can go find a space and just pray. So wanted to invite you into that. I know it's not going to work for most people. I know most people have, uh, are working then. So find a time for yourself that works in your schedule this week. What is it going to look like for you to intentionally fast? So I started my time this morning with the old phrase, right? It is better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. But that we, in our self-protection, don't always believe that and keep people out. Now, you may be a bit more motivated after my time to give fasting a go and see if it fixes your heart toward God, right? But I'll be honest, despite thinking fasting is good for us, I also know that no spiritual practice has the ability to heal our hearts. I have found, <clears throat> particularly through parenting, Alex, that the only thing that can truly mend a heart that is afraid to be broken is stable love. Love that says, even when I know all of you, I love you. Love that says, despite your turning your back on me, I will not turn away from you. I love you. Love that says, not even death will do us part. 
we are able to even approach God and his abundance through fasting because he first loved us. And that love is not one that is dictated by how good we are, how much we perform, or, how, or even how hungry we are for it. No, this love is solely determined by how good God is. And because this love is rooted in his character and not our perfection, it is a love that will not leave nor forsake us, even as we open ourselves up to more and more of it. It is only by truly knowing and experiencing God's love, which surpasses all knowledge, that we can open ourselves up to fasting and ask for more of God. So please know, church, that even if you are not longing for him well, if, you're, if you aren't feeling like you are ready to set your eyes on him, if you don't feel worthy to ask for, no of him, or for more of him, I want you to know that he loves you with a love that neither death nor love, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from. It's understanding this love that allowed Paul to say in Philippians 3 what aligns so well with the quotes we heard from earlier. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Let us be a people this week who count it all as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Let us cultivate lives of longing. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.